This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, It's a time-honored question that we have here in our country. What do you want to be when you grow up? Every single one of us has probably been asked that as a kid. We've probably asked other kids that. What do you want to be when you grow up? And so, you know, when children typically answer that, right, they're going to say something like heroic, like an astronaut or a pro athlete, or a movie star, or a president, God forbid, president, or something like that, right? Um, A a cop, maybe a firefighter, something heroic. And um, so what do you want to be when you grow up? That's the mantra that you hear ringing in your ears as a little child. What do you want to be when you grow up? And we're told, children are told, you can do whatever you want to do, right? You can be whatever you want to be. It's not really that easy, is it? (laughs) Um, It's not really that easy. There's more to it. It doesn't really work that way. Um, And so when I read Abram's story, uh, with the first 11 chapters of Genesis as the preface, it seems that Abram, in his culture, grew up with a very similar mantra ringing in his ears, Except it was a little bit different. It was be fruitful and multiply. That, that's what you're supposed to grow, be when you grow up. Someone who's fruitful and multiplies. That was the slogan of his people, of his ancestors. And that was sort of like what was down under his skin, like tattooed on his heart mind. It was so central to Abram's family that his, his, his status, his very status, it was wrapped up in him having an heir, a male descendant, a male heir in particular. To have kids for Abram was, in a sense, to arrive. And the the son, right, he could perpetuate the family line and assume lordship of the family and carry on the father's legacy, and uh, he could similarly become consumed with that slogan. The children, as you know, in antiquity were... Uh, very valuable in many ways, especially the males. They would follow in the vocational footsteps of dad and keep the family business or a family farm afloat. They would support their father in a local dispute. Like if dad got into it, they would have dad's back. And they would follow dad into battle if need be. And uh, they could inherit the land and tend to it. Sons buried the fathers. And in royal and powerful families, the the son, the prince, could become a king. Proverbs says a a large population is a king's glory. So we see this later in Genesis as well with Jacob. Also, his name is Israel. Um, He says, bless the children. By them may my name be recalled and the names of my father's 
Abram and Isaac, and may they be teeming with multitudes upon the land. And in Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelites of God's faithfulness. He says, God has multiplied you as numerous as the stars of the heavens. But then he continues, he keeps going and he says, in the future, your descendants will be a thousand times as many. Godlike. So God, He seeks this holy nation and this holy family, a holy people, ungodly, no dice. God doesn't long for that. So He began this everlasting covenant with Noah and with the land, and that carried on then to Abram, father of God's chosen people. And so Abram, he grew up wanting a child because his son meant that he was Society-wise, a man with a legacy. Like all his relatives and all his answers, it was expected. And his call from God in chapter 12 of Genesis only intensified that. Abram, I'm going to make you, your, your descendants, as numerous as the stars. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be as numerous as the sands, as numerous as the dust. In fact, they'll be more numerous than the dust. And so this, this call from God, it like sparked this fire in Abram's bones and he became consumed by it and obsessed with it. His people, his culture, his God, everything pointed him in this direction. He needed a child. He needed children. But there was a problem. God. God was Abram's problem. God didn't seem to be coming through for him. You ever felt like that? <laughs> Abram spent a decade waiting in Canaan in the promised land, but there was no child for him to be found in sight. And that's why I've said the last few weeks that he kept his insurance policy, his nephew Lot, in his back pocket. His thinking was, man, if I don't ever become a biological father by my own right, then I'll just deem my relative Lot my heir. And so that right there was the root part of, of Abram's struggle. And so what you need to know is this. When we read Genesis 11 up through Genesis 25, which brings us to the end of Abram's story, um, Abram is the focal point of those chapters, what we find okay, is Abram's life in these chapters is populated by eight crisis moments. Eight crisis moments. And in a way, these eight crises, they all have the root in one big crisis, no child, no male child, no heir. So the first crisis was this. We already read about it in Genesis 12. God calls Abram and he says to him, Abram, you yourself go. And what does Abram do? He goes, but he's only part obedient because he takes Lot along with him. He's not supposed to. Part disobedience. He hedged. And so he brought a backup plan just in case, you know, God didn't pull through on this. I'm sure all of us get that. I can relate a lot 
to that. Um, the second crisis comes when he, after he acts on his own accord, he leaves the promised land, Canaan. He leaves Canaan and goes south for Egypt. And just before they enter into Egypt, he says to his wife, Sarai, babe, you're fine. Too fine, maybe. Too fine, maybe. So when we get to Egypt, man, I'm scared. I'm scared that they're going to kill me and take you. So help me out a little bit, Sarai. Uh, just act like you're not my wife. Like maybe just act like you're my sister instead. And then we'll both be okay. And it's a crazy story. He shouldn't have done it. Sarai, if you read, go back and she doesn't get to speak in that story. Like she doesn't get a say. And she's at the whim of this man, Abram. And he ends up trading her to Pharaoh for cattle. And he becomes for a time, or she becomes for a time, Pharaoh's wife. But here's what I think must have been going through Abram's head. If I die when we get into Egypt, then I won't get to have a son for an heir. Like, I'll be dead. So I need to protect my neck in order to protect my legacy. And so this desire for the child was so ingrained in Abram that it colors like his whole story, everything he says and does, everything we know about him. And so today, in, in our focal text for today, we get to the third crisis. And Abram, he goes to war to save Lot. That's what we're going to read about. Now, many tell this story in, in a way that makes Abram this like really, really noble guy and whatnot. But here's the thing, in Genesis 14, God never speaks. In this whole chapter that we're getting ready to read, God never speaks. And what that means is that he never tells Abram to go, you yourself go into war. He never tells Abram to act. So Abram acts on his own accord without God. He goes into war to capture his nephew Lot and save him. Why? Not merely because Lot's a valiant man, but once again to save his own legacy. Right? That's why he does it. If Lot, his backup, is captured in war, he's a prisoner of war, and if he's captured and dies or he gets killed, then Abram's backup plan is gone. He's out of luck. And so Abram, the very guy who traded his wife so he didn't put himself in harm's way, runs right into harm's way for his nephew Lot. Both for the same reason. To protect his legacy. And so it's this third crisis in Abram's life that we're going to see today. I'm going to read chapter 14 here in a second. And along the way, we're just going to, I'm going to share some thoughts on this. So here's what the beginning says. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. All right. Well, <laughs> we got through one verse, okay? But we just need a little bit of backstory for this, okay? Some context. And in a moment, I promise you, in a moment, this is going to come alive to you like you would never imagine it to come alive to you. Okay, so hang with me here. I promise you this is, this is really cool if you can hang with me here. Now, um, so here in 14.1, we have these four kings that are mentioned, right? And they all live outside of Canaan. They all live outside the promised land. 
to the north, to the east, and to the south, in the promised lands like over here, okay? And so there was this major trade route that ran on the edge of the promised land, kind of. It was called the King's Highway. And uh, it, it went from Egypt all the way north on past the promised land. And there's a stop-off near south, the, the southern part of the promised land of Canaan, called Jordan, the Jordan, Jordan Valley, right? That's where Lot chose. We saw that last week. And so in the Jordan Valley, we have Sodom and Gomorrah. It's outside the promised land, but it's very close. And so if you think of a highway in the four compass points, north, east, southwest, the highway is kind of running along up toward from the south to the north, kind of on the eastern edge, right outside of Canaan, the promised land. And these kings, north, east, south, outside of Canaan, they make an alliance. They say, all right, let's go attack. Let's go and attack the Jordan Valley, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so there's this alliance of four and they attack. And when they do, what they're doing is they're attacking these smaller cities that have like tribal kind of kings, right? And these four big kings, they unite under uh, Kedor Laomer. We'll just call him Ked today, right? Ked. And so here's what the next few verses, please stick with me. I promise this will come alive in a minute. Okay? It says, they made war, the four kings, they made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also called Zoar. All these, it's five, right? All these joined together in the Valley of Siddim, also called the Salt Sea. Now, I know this seems crazy. It's a lot of names, crazy names. But remember in the preceding chapter when Lot separated from Abram, the text says that he chose to go to Sodom and that the people there were sinful and wicked and to the Lord exceedingly so. Many of these names right here underscore that. They, these names, actually, when you take them together, they tell a story. So look at this. Here's the four kings that we saw in verse 1. Right? Look at what their names mean. Uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar, carries the connotation of the king who speaks darkness or curses in the country of two rivers. Arioch, king of Elisar, carries this connotation of the lion king who subdued God. Well, that's kind of crazy. Powerful sounding. Ked, king of Elam, carries the connotation of king of many sheaves, which is just a way of saying grain for eternity. Like grain forever. He's very, very rich. Rich forever is another way we can think of Title, king of Goyim, carries the connotation of the king who is a great son of the people. These are pretty good names. The curse king, the lion king, the rich king, and the great son king. They all form this alliance, and here are their targets. So look at this. These five. Bera of Sodom carries the connotation of the king who burns with evil in the Jordan Valley, right? Bersha, uh, Bersha of Gomorrah carries this connotation of the king who's violently wicked. Shinab of Adma, the connotation of the king from the land who hates his father. Uh, the king from the land of E who hates his father. Shemeber of Zeboim, the connotation, the king's coalition of those who've lost their father's name. 
Zoar of Bella, the connotation of the king who devours the insignificant. And so these five tribal kings, they join together in this valley of Siddim. Siddim actually means demon or violence. So follow me here, right? These five kings, they outside of the promise, they form an alliance in the valley of demons. <laughs> it's crazy. They form an alliance against the valley of demons or the valley of violence. And they go into the valley of violence to attack. And so these names of these five kings, the king burning with evil, the violently wicked king, king of the father haters, king of the fatherless, king who devours the ends, this, these are all in the Jordan Valley where Lot moved. And so the point of this is it underscores the kind of place that Lot has put himself in. Do you follow me here? All right, this is pretty amazing to me. It really underscores the kind of people that Lot surrounded himself with. And so the four powerful kings, they attack the five smaller when it's four against five, but the four win. And so all of this, again, is going on outside the promised land. Here's how the scriptures continue talking about this. They, the five tribal kings, served or the, the, yeah, the five tribal kings served Ked for 12 years. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. Well, that's interesting. So after the four powerful kings led by Ked descended upon the five tiny tribal kings, the five tiny tribal kings became captive for 13 years. But the text goes on to tell us this, this isn't enough territory for the alliance of the powerful four. They want more. Ked wants more. So the, the chapter continues. In the 14th year, Ked came and the kings who were with him and struck the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzaim, the Zuzim and Ham. So you can see him, he's expanding his territory. He wants more land. The Enim and Shava, Kiriathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir to El Paran, which is by the wilderness. They returned and came to En Mishpat, also called Kadesh. To an ancient Hebrew hearing this, it would have been like me saying, like, you know, the, the government official over in Waianae, you know, down in Wahiwa, over in Waimanala. You get it, right? To an ancient Hebrew, this would have all made sense, right? And so you can see in verse 7, they returned and came to En Mishpat, also called Kadesh, and struck all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that lived in Hazazan Tamar. And so King Ked, he strived to expand his reach and his rule and his territory. But these five tribal kings, after nearly a decade and a half, they decided enough. Like we've had enough of being your subjects. We can continue reading here. Stick with me. This is more than just a biblical history lesson. The coming verses describe what happens next in the saga. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, also called Zoar, went out. And they set the battle in array against them in the valley of Siddim, in the valley of violence, of demons, against Ked, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, Four kings against five. And the text will repeat that several times. Four kings against five. So the five small kings decided to put their foot down. They plotted. They planned. And they rose up against the four powerful kings. And it took a decade and a half for them to work up the courage to retaliate. But now they do. And it backfires. 
It backfires in a really, really bad way. Some of the five kings, the tribal kings, become the punchline of the story. Here it is. The next verses say, Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits. Like tar pits. Holes in the ground filled with tar. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and some fell into the tar pits. Those who remained fled to the hills. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went their way. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who lived in Sodom and his goods and departed. And that's the pivot point in our story. Halfway through the chapter, chapter 14, we find out why we're getting this history lesson at the beginning. This, this ancient military history. This wasn't a war that Israel was involved in. It didn't even happen in the promised land. It was outside the promised land. Abram's nephew Lot had been captured. That's why we get all the backstory. It's what sparks the third crisis in Abram's life. Abram didn't cause this war. He didn't have anything to do with it. He was sucked into it. It was simply another consequence of him having taken Lot in the first place. And now he finds himself in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war because of an earlier act of disobedience. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Sometimes we will suffer later for the consequences of an earlier act. Sometimes we'll have to battle later because the consequences of an earlier choice. Maybe it passed long ago and we've gotten obedient now. We've gotten clean now. Maybe we've gotten sober, sober-minded, healthy, matured, whatever. But that doesn't mean that the consequences still won't come find us and come to bear if Abram had never brought Lot, if he'd never acted in disobedience in the first place, then none of this would have happened. And now he has to go to battle with the consequence of an old action, a past action. Doesn't it suck when the past creeps up like that? You think it's gone, but boom. Here it is, now again in the present, seemingly right back on our doorstep, out of nowhere. Let's keep going with this story. The next verse says, One who had escaped from the war came and told Abram the Hebrew. Notice that, Abram the Hebrew. He's not described as Lot's relative here. Maybe the writer's putting distance between him and Lot. Lot has all but lost his Hebrew identity. Abram hasn't. He's held on to it. But as we'll see, you know, this kind of rattles Abram, kind of shakes him. It comes back to him a bit. He starts thinking, you know, Lot, crap, Lot is my relative. He's my backup. My insurance policy is my potential heir. If he dies, my legacy is never going to live on. And the story continues. Well, at that time, he, Abram, lived by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner. They were the allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother, his nephew, was taken captive, he let out his 318 trained men, born in his house, but not of him. 
and pursued as far as Dan. Now, don't get me wrong. It's nice to have some people you can call up who have your back and are ready to go into battle with you. This is not that. This is Abram dragging a bunch of people into his crap. It's Abram dragging everyone around him into the consequences of the sin of his life. Right? Do you know people like that? It might even be you. <laughs> might be me. Ever drag people into the consequences of your bad choices? Ever like suck people into the vortex of your consequences? Misery loves company, doesn't it? It's nice to have folks who will go into that with you, right? There's a sense in which, like, we as Christians are called to walk with people through some of that tough stuff. But there's also a point, as I talked about last week, right, where we need to just put an end to it. We tell people, walk, separate from me. Here's the truth. Here's the truth I want to share with you today. When you get free, you also free everyone around you. When you get free, you also free everyone around. Did you know that? When you get free, you also free everyone around. When you get free of your crap, right? You, you also free everybody around you from that. Because it doesn't affect them any longer. And some people want to play Messiah and Savior. Abram, in a sense, he struggled with something like that. He'd made the decision to separate from Lot, and well, here he was again, rushing headlong back into Lot's life, into Lot's trouble. And it's a direct consequence of his disobedience. But still, let's look at the next few verses. It says, Abram, he, Abram divided himself against them, the other armies, by night, he and his servants, and then struck them and pursued them to Hobah, which is to the left of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot. He's not described as the nephew or brother or son here, and his goods and the women also and the other people. Abram rescues these other people along the way. Abram's successful. He makes it out alive. Mix it out with his nephew and other people must have been so relieved. His potential heir is spared. His legacy could live on if he didn't have a son, right? He was not totally relieved though. And as we start chapter 15 next week, we see that Abram's actually nervous. Some anxiety bubbling up in him. He's worried after he's done all this that some of these alliance of the four, they're going to come back and get him. He has this fear that he has to sit in after taking this action. It's a tension he has to deal with and live in. This tension of like relief and anxiety. Maybe there's going to be more future consequences for doing this. This thing going into war when God didn't tell him to. Taking matters into his own hands. And we see, what we see is the depth that Abram is willing to go to to keep the hope of having a child alive. He's willing to disobey God repeatedly and just deal with the consequences of his disobedience. If he had just trusted and obeyed, things wouldn't have played out this way. More on that in a moment. Let's read some more. It says this, The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ked. 
and the slaughter of the kings who were with him. At the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And so clearly Abraham kills people. He sheds blood, takes life. And he did so. He had his men do so in Abram's self-interest. It was his own self-initiated and self-interested initiative. It's not good. And so this tribal king of Sodom comes out and he greets Abram upon his return from the war. But there's this other figure too. And the text continues. Notice the contrast. It starts with 18 here. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So notice we had the king of Sodom and the king of Salem both coming out. And this one brings out wine and bread. And he was a priest to God on high. He blessed them and said, Blessed be Abram by God on high, owner of the sky and land. And blessed be God on high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him a tenth of everything. So this king, Melchizedek here, we read about him in Psalms and Hebrews, but there's not much said about him. He blesses Abram. Now Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And he's the king of Salem. And Salem means peace. So he's the king of righteousness in the city of peace. And in Jewish tradition, he's the very first king. And he's the very first priest. Salem is actually just abbreviated form of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? The city of peace. And so he blesses Abraham with a kingly blessing and a priestly blessing and a, a priestly blessing. And it brings to mind the earlier word from God to Abram. You'll be a blessing to the nations and I'll bless those who bless you. He also says he'll curse those who curse Abram. And so there's a distinct difference between Melchizedek who blesses Abram, and the king of Sodom who kind of curses Abram. Look at the last few verses of this chapter. This, wind, this rounds us out here. The king of Sodom, notice what he says to Abram. Look at this. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and take the goods for yourself. In other words, give me my suppliants, give me my slaves back. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted up my hand to Adonai, the God on high, the owner of the sky and the land, that I will not take a thread nor a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I'll accept nothing from you except that which the young men have eaten and the portion for the men who went with me. Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Abram refuses to give the people back. All right, so in this last bit here, Done a lot of explaining the scripture, right? In this last bit, we see a difference between Melchizedek and the king of Sal uh, and the king of Sodom. We have a king of righteousness in the city of peace, and Bera, the king of Sodom, who burns with evil. And he tries to manipulate Abram. Abram may have taken a soldier's oath before he went into battle that he wouldn't keep things for himself, which is why he tries to stay honest. But whatever the case, Barah of Sodom makes a bold request. Give me the people back. I need my slaves back. You take the goods, give me the people. He's a king burning with wickedness. Abram refuses. He's not going to let Barah enslave them again. And he won't let it seem as though Barah is who gave him the victory or brought him out. And so you may be wondering, why is any of this significant? Why did I come here and listen to this today? Why is this important? It's a really good question if you're thinking that. 
I didn't want you to come just for a history lesson today. And there's, there is some value in just knowing this history. There's another great lesson to be learned too. And it's that Abram's disobedience early on leads him, or he has to deal with the consequences of that in a war later. That's a good lesson, but there's more even, there's more. Abram, he was obsessed with having an heir, and that's a problem because Abram gets tunnel vision, right? And he, he's only thinking about how he can make that come to fruition his way. He just wanted a son. Yet God, God had said from the beginning, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the land. And so maybe, just maybe Abram's perspective is too shallow and too small. You see, God confronted him at the start of chapter 12. Hang with me here. He confronted him at the end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 12. And he told him, Abram, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In short, Abram, if you just trust, like, I got you. You're going to have many sons. Like, you're obsessed with just one. And that's your problem. I want to give you many but if he had a barren wife, how? Nephew for a backup. Not really the best option. And so my point is this. Abram couldn't see beyond the circumstance he was in. Like even though God kept telling him, he couldn't see beyond that circumstance, beyond what consumed him. He had a tunnel vision, small vision. And God was saying, look, man, I've got something so much bigger. So much bigger, just trust me. Abram had been tamed into building his life around one thing, one heir. And a legacy coming out of that. But God had more for him. And my question now is, have you ever been tamed? Have you been tamed? Maybe a coach who didn't see your potential and tamed your skills with hurtful words or maybe by benching you. Right? A parent who didn't believe your dream and tamed you by boxing you in. You're going to do what I do. You're going to go where I go. Right? A teacher who viewed you as less than and tamed your abilities by comparing you to the rest of the class. A significant other who viewed you as not good enough and tamed the success of a good relationship. A pastor who tamed you into low-level spiritual maturity because he or she or whoever didn't think you could handle real depth. I've had some of those in my life. A church that tamed you for milk rather than meat when it was on the menu. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. We've all been different places in life. Right? A boss who tamed you Right? By tamed your desires to advance in the company by holding you back. Have you ever been tamed? That's my question. Maybe you've been forced to tame yourself. Just so others don't think you're crazy. Like, I can't think that big. Other people will think I'm nuts. I can't think that out of the lines or out of the box because other people will think I'm nuts. Abram had been tamed by his tunnel vision of a single heir, but God had something so much greater in store. And you see, sometimes, just maybe, God has something else in store, something else in mind, something more, something better, something greater. And that one person or thing consumes us and eats at us 
eats our thoughts, eats, a, eats up our time, our bandwidth, our energy, our money, and so on. And it's small compared to what God actually is ready to give us or wants to give us. Can you relate to that? Listen, I've been praying and praying and praying for the Bridge Church to have a place to call our own. I've been praying for that. And I know some of you were praying about that way long before I ever got here, before I was ever even stepped foot on this island. Right? A lot of you were praying about that and dreaming about that and hoping for that. And as I was working on the message this week, and it hit me that maybe, maybe a building is what we want, but maybe God has something more. Maybe, just maybe, maybe we're thinking too small. I don't know. Maybe we have tunnel vision. I don't know. Maybe we don't. But what if God, like hang with me here, what if God called the Bridge Church to never have a building? Like would we be okay with that? Could we be a church without walls and be okay with that and be obedient to that? What if God said, hey, Bridge Take that money you've been sitting on in the bank for a while and care for the people around you. Help some people adopt. Help some people foster. What if God said that? Would we be obedient? No, God, we got that for the building. Even when we're holding out on a building. You know, I don't know. Like, would we be obedient? Am I praying, am I praying about this? I ask the Lord, like, Lord, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, how are you praying about this? Because I want to pray in concert with you, and I want to pray how you're praying. And uh, Spirit, what are you praying? Give me the words that you're praying so I can say the same thing. And I don't like to say this from a place of like arrogance or whatever, but I just heard, trust me, Michael, I'll provide. And that seems like really vague. God, a lot of times, really vague, like, Abram, go to the land, I'll show you. Which land? Just go, I'll show you. Just go, I'll show you. And so I kind of leave it at that, at that, that I, I'm going to trust in the Lord's provision, and as best as I can, I'm going to strive to be obedient. But here's the thing. <sighs> I don't, I don't think that this trust that, that God is asking of me and that God is asking of y'all is a tamed trust. I think we're called to an untamed trust. And what I mean is that our trust needs to be big enough to embrace the wild. Like if God calls us to something wild, we just got to trust it. Reminds me of this story. I'm going to tell you a story as I come to a close here of a cheetah. Okay? Hang on with me just for a few more minutes. Several years ago, his family was visiting a zoo, and as they were walking into the entrance, they see this sign there, and it says, you know, scheduled for today, cheetah run. Cheetah run. I thought that sounded exciting. And so they, they planned to come back for this cheetah run later in the day. And so they did. At, at the event, they sat down and this zookeeper comes out with the khaki vest and she brings out a Labrador dog and the Labrador dog just sits down there next to her. Folks were kind of confused at first. What the? This isn't a cheetah. 
right? And so she introduces the lab. This is our Labrador named Minnie. She told the story of how Minnie, the Labrador, was raised with the cheetah, Tabitha. <laughs> Since Tabitha had been a baby cheetah. And she said, Minnie loves this bunny. It wasn't a real bunny. It was a stuffed bunny, right? And she, she loves to chase this bunny. The zookeeper took this pink bunny and she tied it to the back of a Jeep that was sitting there. And she told them that first, Minnie was going to chase after this pink bunny and then Tabitha, the cheetah, was going to do the same. And so out in the distance, right, there's this finish line painted on the ground and um, they would time them to see how fast they got to this finish line. So she signals to the driver of this Jeep where she tied the, the pink stuffed bunny, signal for the driver to take off. And the driver took off and Minnie the dog whew, sprints after the pink bunny on the back of the Jeep, crosses the finish line in seconds, and she stops and sits there in Labrador fashion looking at the pink bunny. And so the zookeeper does it again, they bring out the tab Tabitha the cheetah, and she counts down, right? And the driver takes off, and the cheetah whoo, starts chasing this dirty pink bunny uh, across the finish line, just in seconds, right? And when she did, the zookeeper throws out a stake, lands on the ground, and Tabitha starts pawing the stake and hunkers down in the dirt and starts chewing on it, and the audience is clapping and cheering, Sounds kind of like going over to Sea Life Park with the great ocean view in the background. You have five or six dolphins. They're trapped in the size of a couple of swimming pools, a tank the size of a couple of swimming pools. It's, it's something wrong with that picture. Should it be that day after day, this wild cheetah chases dirty pink bunnies down this well-worn narrow path, never catching the bunny, never settling at the end of it for a store-bought steak and the distracted approval of a bunch of sweaty strangers, obeying the zookeeper's every command, unaware, right, that if she just for a moment remembered her wildness, just for a moment, she could tear the zookeepers to shreds. What would Tabitha the cheetah say if you asked her about her life? Would she say, you know, something's off about my life. I feel restless and frustrated. I have this hunch that everything was supposed to be more beautiful than this. I imagine like fenceless, wide open savannas. I want to run and hunt and kill, sleep under an ink black silent sky filled with stars. And then would Tabitha the cheetah just say, ah, oh, never mind. I should just be grateful. I have a good enough life here. It's crazy to long for what doesn't even exist. And if she said that to you or to me, how would we respond? Perhaps, perhaps there's only one right response. Tabitha, you're not crazy. You're a freaking cheetah! You are a freaking cheetah. You're not supposed to be tamed. Your dreams are not supposed to be tamed. You should think bigger. Dream bigger. Run farther. You're not supposed to be tamed. Are you following me? 
right? Because God looks at Abram and he says to Abram, one child? One child, I want to make you the father of many nations, many children. You are mine. You're freaking Abram. You, like your truth, is not supposed to, your trust is not supposed to be tamed. Trust me with an untamed trust. You're freaking Abram. Your descendants should be as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sands, the dust. Your trust shouldn't be tamed. You're freaking Abram. And maybe it's the same for us, right? Bridge, your trust is not supposed to be tamed. Just trust me on this, guys. Trust me, you're the freaking bridge, right? I want to do something great, something new, something fresh, something amazing. Untamed trust is what I want to see. So look, <laughs> as, as, the, as the lead pastor here, I want a place to call home and I pray for it. But you know what I want more? It's to do God's will. To do the things that he wants to do and to do them his way. And if that means that we got to think differently and get a little untamed in our trust and thinking, then so be it. Let's think wider and deeper and farther. I'm not saying God's not ever going to give a building. Maybe he will. I trust his word is going to provide, even though I don't know exactly what that looks like. I trust, I'm trying to trust with an untamed trust. And I invite you to do that with me. Because I'm just saying maybe it's greater than what we expect. And so I want to be open to whatever that means. And at the same time, I don't want to get a case of supposer syndrome. It's our word of the week. I just made this disease up this week. So you're not going to find this in medical handbooks. Supposer syndrome. It's a spiritual condition where someone always supposes that what God desires should be questioned. Abram had supposer syndrome, at least off and on, didn't he? God says, you yourself go, Abram. Abram, well, I suppose I should take Lot. I suppose I should take Lot too, shouldn't I? God, go to the land, I'll show you, Abram. Abram, well, there's a famine here, so I suppose I should go to Egypt, shouldn't I? I suppose I should take my wife and trade her for cattle, shouldn't I? And I suppose that if Lot's been captured, my chance at an heir, I should go to war for him, shouldn't I? Supposer syndrome. Have you ever had this? I have. I've had this. I end with this. I heard this, this story is, is real quick. I heard this old story about this lady. Her name was Nancy. She's from the South, where, near from where I'm from, I guess. And she earned her living working for this daily job. And this, this company, anytime this company seemed like it could fold, like it could close, close its doors. And her friend asked her, Nancy, you're happy now, but, but suppose this business closes. Will that sober you? Or, or suppose you get a spell of sickness and you actually can't even go to work anymore. Or, or suppose your employer moves far away. Or, or suppose, and Nancy says, stop. Stop. I never supposes. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd. And I knows I shall not want. And honey, it's all them supposes is making you so miserable. You better give them all up. <laughs>
and just trust the Lord. So let us let go of supposer syndrome, right? This is trust, full-on trust, untamed trust, a resting in God kind of trust. A kind of trust we don't, we don't care about leaving a legacy for ourselves, but a legacy that points to God and His future perfect kingdom. That kind of trust. Period. Full stop. End of sentence. End of story. A wild, untamed trust. Look, we may not be able to predict what's next, but we can know what's next as far as our actions go. Untamed trust. That's our next act. Moment after moment, untamed trust after untamed trust. And that brings us just to the bottom of the line here, or the, this week's bottom line. Untamed trust is the soil that grows obedience to God's lead. I'm not going to talk about that. It's going to leave you to think over it this week. Mull it over. Shun supposer syndrome and live with untamed trust. Amen. Let's stand together and I'll bless you. And now, may you go with an untamed trust, remembering just how great our God is. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.